made by Apple, which when the iPhone was released was called Apple Computer, but later changed its name in large part because of the iPhone, was originally introduced in January of 2007. The first model of this device was pretty clunky and even somewhat useless compared to contemporary smartphones, and even the next step upgraded model that came out in 2008 was pretty bare bones, and I can confirm having owned that model that it didn't do much. The iPhone App Store didn't arrive until the summer of 2008, and that App Store didn't have much beyond gimmicky party gags and a few simple games and utilities for the first little while, so there was a period during which the device was mostly amazing because of its touchscreen and its whiz-bang-seeming calculator and web browser and weather apps, all of which looked really great for the time compared to other mainstream, high-end, desirable devices that were on the market, made primarily by BlackBerry and a few other tech companies. But there wasn't really much else to do. Simply being able to tap and zoom and browse the web with your fingertips was enough of a magic trick that everybody wanted to hold and play with this now fairly clunky-seeming early edition smartphone. Depending on your definition, the iPhone was or was not the first smartphone, as the aforementioned BlackBerry had a decent-sized screen and keyboard and little mouse knob that you could use to navigate the web, and what are now usually called feature phones, which are like old-school cell phones but with bigger screens and internet connectivity, most popularly made by Nokia and their Symbian operating system, with a few scattered options also using a mobile version of Windows, were all on the market when the iPhone was announced. But none of these devices had that magical finger-tapping, dragging, zooming, browsing input, and none had screens that spanned essentially the entire device. And that's what made these iPhones, which underperformed in many regards compared to those other options, so desirable and monetarily successful from the get-go. Monetary success doesn't necessarily mean market share success, though. Also from the beginning, iPhones had a huge price tag compared to other offerings, and the introduction of the Android operating system, scooped up by Google and released as open-source software, optimized for full-screen touch-enabled devices, resulted in the development and deployment of countless competitor devices, most of which basically copied the iPhone's look and feel. Though some companies bravely tried other alternatives to the vanilla, shiny brick model before giving up and making their own shiny bricks. Android could be used by any company willing to play ball with Android's fairly friendly and tenable operating scheme, while Apple kept iOS, its mobile touchscreen device operating system, and accompanying App Store all to itself. Thus, while iOS remained stuck on iPhones, older eventually discontinued iPod Touches, and then the subsequently released iPads, Android spread far and wide, injected into everything from smartphones to tablets to car stereo systems to TVs and personal assistant devices. As a consequence, Android has long boasted a much larger market footprint than iOS, and Apple has been okay with that, as they have positioned themselves as a premium brand that people are willing to shell out more money for, not something for everyone, like Android. But the tables have turned in this regard, a little bit at least, in recent years, 
In 2021, according to CounterPoint Research, the iPhone achieved a greater than 50% smartphone market share in the United States for the first time, as of the sales quarter ending in June. That means more than half of all in-use smartphone devices in the United States, the active installed base, to use the industry's terminology, are iPhones, while the other half consists of about 150 other devices, almost all of which use Android, and the majority of which are made by either Samsung or Lenovo. This increase has reportedly been a slow burn rather than a monumental leap in growth for iOS during a short period, and it's the first time Android has had less than 50% of that installed OS market share since 2010, when it first overtook Apple alongside Microsoft, Nokia, Motorola, and BlackBerry to claim mobile phone operating system dominance. And to be clear, Apple has long owned the premium smartphone market, claiming about 57% of $400 plus devices and around 78% of smartphones that cost more than $1,000. But this is a pretty big deal for them to claim more than half of the all smartphone segment, and it introduces a few new business opportunities as well. Apple as a company has been pushing more into services, especially those related to ensuring devices, cloud storage, TV, music, and video game services, alongside various health-related efforts. More iPhones in use means more people to sell these services too, as they tend to only be offered, with few exceptions, to iPhone and iPad users. But it's also been working toward building out another leg of its financial stool to help supplement and maybe even someday replace the income they generate from selling devices on one hand and hawking services for those devices on the other. What I'd like to talk about today is another slow burn strategy by Apple, in this case to introduce and augment a device-specific advertising platform how that strategy is going, and what they had to do to carve out space for themselves in the very crowded digital advertising industry. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Financial Times, and it's entitled, Apple Plans to Double Its Digital Advertising Business Workforce. This is a relatively concise piece about a recent series of job postings by Apple, reflecting next-step plans to build out an advertising team that will be about twice the size of its current ad team, adding another 216 positions to the around 250 people it already has working in that department and it's pitching potential hires on the idea of creating what it calls, quote, the most privacy-forward, technologically sophisticated, and quote, ad platform available. Now, this is notable already because of Apple's influence in the hardware market. As I mentioned in the intro, it is a heavy hitter on the premium side of things globally, but it's also recently become dominant in the lucrative and influential American market overall, taking more than 50% of the in-use market as of mid-last year but also because it's just a massive company. Apple has a market cap, the value of all its stock shares added together, of just shy of $2.5 trillion as of the day I'm recording this. And that's down from recent highs, but it's still enough to make Apple the most valuable company on the planet by most monetary metrics. So anything Apple does is arguably noteworthy. 
both because they often set trends that the rest of the hardware and software world follows or riffs upon, and because their movements are a bit like the movements of a whale or a planet. They upset local ecosystems, they create their own gravity, they sometimes gobble up other entities or eat those entities' meals, and that can lead to a lot of knock-on effects, even in distant-seeming industries. This is even more newsworthy than a normal Apple happening, though, because it could represent a sea change in the way Apple operates and how it earns money. And to understand why, we need to go back to April of 2021, about 17 months ago, as of the day I'm recording this episode, to the rollout of iOS version 14.5, which was the first version of this operating system that allowed users to opt out of tracking in iOS apps. What that means in practice is that folks with iPhones and iPads could choose to disallow apps like Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or random little casual games downloaded from the App Store from soaking up all their data and sharing that data with third parties. This update was promoted as a huge win for user privacy, and that arguably remains the case. I personally went through and removed data capturing and use permissions for every app that allowed it following this update, and Apple soon started prompting users more directly, asking them if they wanted to keep allowing, say, Facebook, to know where they are, to see what they're doing, and to use that information to sell more targeted, optimized ads in their apps and other platforms. This tool was called App Tracking Transparency, and it represented a huge shift in Apple's approach to dealing with app makers and how they monetize their apps. Many makers having years ago shifted from models that, like traditional product-selling business models, required payments from users in order to access most or all of their functionality, to instead focus on blasting the app out to as many users as possible and monetizing their use via advertisements and the selling of user data to third parties, often for ad optimization purposes. And for a while there, Apple encouraged this business model, because for them it was kind of a free promotional tool. Look at all the apps we've got on our app store, and look how many of them are free for you to use. That is a competitive advantage. While many privacy groups and users were thrilled with this update and new policy direction from Apple, Google and Facebook and Snap, the maker of Snapchat, among many, many others, were pissed. Apple had more or less started to demonize the practice of gathering user data for ad-targeting purposes, and these other tech companies were saying, hey, seriously, we've been giving you these free apps and other services to use all this time, and that is paid for by us collecting your data and in some cases selling that to others, but mostly, especially in the case of larger tech companies, using that data to make our ads increasingly more specific to each user so we can sell them at higher prices. And now Apple, the maker of a huge number of popular devices and one of the two dominant operating systems on these most common of all personal pieces of gear, is saying that what we do is not okay. And not quite banning us, but giving users the option of cutting us out of their lives. And in fact, prompting users to do this, so they don't even have to make that choice and then go searching through all the options within settings. They just click a button and it's all done. We make significantly less money on each ad we sell and can't display ads at all in some contexts. How are we supposed to monetize these free apps and keep them going as before? And that big long rambling question is a fair one. I personally prefer not having all of my data sucked up in this way to pay for these services, but that is a trade-off 
that many of us agree to, knowingly or unknowingly, all the time, with all kinds of goods and services. That's the model that supports the majority of media platforms, after all, from TV to streaming services to journalism and podcasts and everything else. Google and Facebook and many other companies are not hurting in terms of their overall balance sheets, but they definitely felt this change and have been making their own changes as a consequence of it. And some such companies, like Snap, have been having a horrible time trying to recalibrate their business models to account for this shift and have struggled to replace that income. Snap recently laid off about 1,300 people, which is about 20% of their total workforce. They also canceled a bunch of interesting projects that were originally pitched as the company's probable next steps, their future. And its stock price is down about 80% since the beginning of 2022. This is not all attributable to Apple's newfound privacy focus when it comes to data, but that certainly didn't help, and several other major companies that have long lived and died by data-tracking revenue have suffered similar downswings, including Meta, the company behind Facebook and Instagram, among other entities. As mentioned earlier, the next step news following this kneecapping of ad-focused companies with apps on its operating system is that Apple now intends to place its own ads within the iOS ecosystem, taking advantage of the gap left by heavyweights like Google and Facebook, and even newer players that have been making big waves and soaking up ad business market share like Amazon, and it'll be deploying these ads to make up for lost revenue from hardware sales, which have been tumultuous over the course of the pandemic, and especially since Russia invaded Ukraine and wrought all sorts of fresh havoc in global supply chains. This will also allow them, maybe, to flesh out a much-desired new leg of that economic stool, balancing things out and helping them get above the $3 trillion market cap milestone at some point in the future. It's a new area of growth, basically, after they have saturated some of their other previous focuses that allowed them to achieve growth. That is the pitch from the company and from bull investors who believe this move will serve as Apple's next great leap, giving them new income streams that are less directly tied to the sale of smartphones or the recurring revenue from services like Apple TV or insurance coverage for their laptops. It's thought that Apple currently pulls in something like $4 billion a year in ad revenue, which is a lot of money, but more like a rounding error or a hobby income for a company as big as Apple. That said, Amazon brought in around $31.2 billion in ad revenue in 2021 after years of investing in their own ad network, and both Snapchat and Twitter can boast somewhere between $4 and $5 billion. So without breaking a sweat, about a year and a half after those privacy plans first came into effect, Apple is already playing in the same league, ad-wise, as two social media companies that almost exclusively make their money from digital advertising. And it long ago surpassed smaller and still significant companies like TikTok and Pinterest, which are still figuring out how to make ad revenue in a constantly evolving digital ecosystem. Now, to be clear, while Apple's move to restrict data collection has been largely celebrated by users and privacy-focused organizations, they are now moving into less certain territory with this refocusing on their own ad network. Just the concept itself, that Apple tooted its own horn about how it's reducing data collection for its users, only to turn around and create its own ad network, both makes it seem like the whole exercise was to hamstring its opposition before deploying its own, maybe skeevy, ad network, but also that it maybe wasn't as serious about all that privacy stuff to begin with. 
Apple says that it's maintaining user privacy within its own ad network and will basically sell ads that are substantially less targeted because of that focus, arguing that their research shows that less targeted ads are basically as effective as ultra-targeted ones anyway, so it's not that big a sacrifice for them. But in many people's minds, advertising and data collection are now two sides of the same coin. And it may be tricky for Apple to convince folks that its ads are better in some way after several years of banging the drum against the shadiness of the advertising industry and all the moves it would be making and has now made to keep that shadiness away from its users. What's more, it may be that this approach nudges or forces non-Apple companies off the iOS app store at some point or dilutes the apps that they maintain there. Already, Apple's insistence on collecting a fee for every financial transaction within apps on its store on Apple-branded devices has led to pushback from other companies, from Netflix to game maker Epic, which have in turn come up with at times elaborate means of keeping apps in the store where users will find them, but then hustling those users off to a second location, usually via a link in the app that leads them outside the app where they then ultimately conduct the transaction, or in some cases, where they play the actual game promoted in the app, doing so on the web in a normal web browser so these companies can avoid paying Apple that fee, all of which contributes to a less good user experience. And although the main competitor here, Google's Android App Store, has plenty of its own restrictions and frictions and usability issues, it doesn't take much to piss people off when they believe that they have paid for a premium experience. And the more frictions they have to suffer and hurdles they have to leap to do the things they want to do on their devices, the more threat that a given user will switch to an alternative and perhaps just check out and not trust the Apple brand anymore. They'll become ambivalent about it rather than enthused, which in turn can degrade the brand's reputation and over time its market share and market cap. Why am I paying all of this money, in some cases upwards of $1,000 for a phone, only to have the maker of the phone shove ads down my throat just like with every other device I own? This is also, according to some analysts at least, weird or just bad timing for Apple to make this transition as there's a global downturn in digital advertising across the board, with a few niche exceptions. Snapchat's parent company, as I mentioned earlier, has been suffering in part because its model of data collection and ad targeting was crushed by Apple's new rules, but it's also suffering because of that larger downturn, as are most other digital advertising-focused companies. In other words, it could be a canny move on Apple's part to step in when even the big dogs in this space are suffering because of what amounts to economic bad weather in their industry, but it could be weather that catches them too and makes their efforts in this space pay off less than anticipated, which could in turn cause them to close up shop, to refocus on something else. Whereas had they kicked off this portion of the plan in better digital advertising conditions, the profits might have flowed more rapidly and immediately and abundantly right off the bat. This is anything but a sure thing, then. But it's a move, a series of moves really, that has already reshaped the smartphone and other portable personal device world, and will likely continue to do so for the foreseeable future. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Economic Weapon, The Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War 
by Nicholas Mulder. This is an interesting book in that it covers a topic that I consider to be underappreciated in that it is formative of the modern world and especially geopolitics, but geopolitics touches so many things it really influences pretty much everything. But part of the reason that we don't fight each other militarily as much as we used to from the mid-20th century onward, post-World War II in particular, is that we have multinational organizations that help us deal with each other, but we also have well-honed, often quite effective, economic weapons that we can use against each other instead of kinetic weapons, instead of explosives and bullets and such. Some of the biggest players in the world, especially the United States and the Soviet Union back in the day, but most countries to some degree at this point, utilize these tools to either punish behavior they don't want to see or to reward behavior that they do. So they are very potent incentives in both directions. And this book provides a good overview of how these tools work, where they came from, and some of the consequences of using them as enthusiastically as we do today. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Economic Weapon by Nicholas Mulder. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode at letsknowthings.com. You can find a collection of my other projects, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.